And yes, as has already been mentioned, 1st of December, the official start of Advent. The word that just means coming, Christmas is coming. But as we're reflecting on in our series, we're talking about anticipation for things coming, and that at a point in time, the wait and the anticipation is over. And why don't we pray as we uh, look at where a lot of that began. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, for its enduring nature, how you speak to us, to all people, about who you are and what you've done. We pray as we look at it tonight, you'll help us to see you are a God who keeps his promises and blesses the world. For Jesus' sake, Amen. Uh, In 1999, for those of you who are around or who are old enough, you may remember that there was a referendum on whether Australia should become a republic. Do we, like the United States some two centuries before us, throw off the shackles of English tyranny and go it alone? Well, as you may know, it didn't get up. We are still part of the Commonwealth. But partly what fueled the referendum on a republic was the question of relevance. So yes, Australia was and still is part of the Commonwealth, part of what was formerly known as the British Empire. But in terms of the running of our country, in terms of the things that affect us, the direction in which we're going, what place does the Queen really have? That question was raised. And if you read the reports today, it's being raised with even more urgency today. But the question is, what relevance does she have? What relevance does the entire crown have? And the answer is very little. Not only in terms of Australia and our national sovereignty and independence, but even by the stage of the late 90s. In fact, well before that, and equally as so today, the royal family itself had become largely decorative. Same true for royal families the world over, especially in the Western world. But that particular watered-down decorative version of monarchy, or an irrelevant version of monarchy, at least in how we experience, that is not the version that has dominated human history. The version of monarchy that has dominated human history is so foreign to our experience, it's almost impossible to get it into our heads. The idea of an absolute monarch. An absolute monarch. Someone with vast, unchallenged personal power. Power over the life of a nation. Power over the lives of millions of citizens, or hundreds of millions across an empire, who distributes power to others, whose very presence inspires awe or fear. Millions of citizens feel safe just because this person is alive, even if they're just asleep in their beds. Merely by virtue of the family identity this person has. In that experience of monarchy, the king and the queen have great relevance, incredible relevance. And this older idea of monarch, that's what the word means, sole ruler, monarch, the idea of someone who's inherently entitled to rule, it seems almost batty to us. But this has been the preferred mode of national rule for most of the world, for most of history. In fact, even to the very margins of our living memory. In my former church, St. James Croydon, there is a 100-year-old collection plate. You know, we had the bags that go around. They had a plate, a collection plate. And on this collection plate is an engraving, and it says this. St. James Croydon, New South Wales, to the glory of God, 
a memento of the coronation of King George V and Queen Mary, June 22nd, 1911, from the parishioners. You see the prominence of monarchy in their mindset? Do you understand what's happened here? So excited were they at the coming to power of King George V that they raised a bunch of money and bought a gift to themselves for the sheer joy of it. And though separated by countless miles, this event was somehow connected to them. It was somehow about them. It was about a ruler over them. And though they had no say whatsoever in who this ruler would be, they saw it as something to celebrate. This was a coronation. They were to have a new king. And that's helpful for us to consider, because as we come to our, particularly the 2 Samuel passage, but both of our passages today, we see that they're all about monarchy. They're all about kingship, about ruling and thrones. And it's easy for us to downplay the significance of this with our 21st century watered-down experience of monarchy. But that is not the monarchy that we see here in 2 Samuel 7. The monarch of 2 Samuel 7, King David of Israel, his power was far from watered down. And as we read about David's rule and the vision of monarchy that God describes here and promises here, we need to adopt a similar mindset to the parishioners of St. James in 1911. That though these events took place thousands of miles away from us, and thousands of years ago, they are somehow about us. About someone who is a ruler over us. And even though we have no say in who this ruler is, this is something to be celebrated. Because it's for our great and undeserved blessing. That's what we see in 2 Samuel. And so, while the question of the British monarchy today is a question of relevance, for the Jewish monarchy, it was a different story. It wasn't one really of relevance, but of permanence. If you're familiar with the storyline of Israel, you might know that this is early days for Israel's monarchy. This is only their second king. But even so, in this passage, there's a real sense of resolution here to a tension that's been in place for some time. Ever since David was anointed back in 1 Samuel 16 as the second king, the king chosen by God after God's own heart, dwelling in God's presence, in God's chosen place. That's what happens here. And in verse 2, David, being a man after God's own heart, he wants to do something to honour God. And it strikes him of the great contrast between his great palace he lives in and where the ark is, in this tent, this temporary dwelling. And so he decides he wants to build God a house, every bit as impressive as his own house. He wants to build a temple. But God's reply is that he doesn't need a house. He's never needed a house because he's God. A temple is in his plans for Israel's future, but not because God needs it. Because his people need it. They need a way to relate to God, to interact with him. And for David, God has different plans. And in this lovely irony, he tells David, instead of you building me a house, I am going to build you a house. What is this house? Well, it's a dynasty, isn't it? There will be a flesh and blood descendant, presumably, from whom more will come. We see that in verse 12. 
This descendant will build the temple that David wanted to build. This descendant's kingdom will be established forever, meaning David's kingdom will be established forever. This descendant, verse 14, will uniquely be a son to God. He will be disciplined when he does wrong. But, crucially, he is someone who, whom God will never take away his faithful love, like he did with Saul. And so what we see here is that 2 Samuel 7 establishes David's line as the only legitimate successor to Israel's throne. For it to be a legitimate king of Israel going forward, it has to be a king of David on the throne. Otherwise, it's not a legitimate king. And you can imagine how that would have sounded to David. It's early days. He's just finally settled. He's still got question marks about his future. What's my kingship going to look like? What does this mean for our nation? And he gets the answer here. Permanence. Permanence. Verse 16. Your house and kingdom will endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. It's not easy to see exactly how David would have interpreted he understand God to mean when he said established forever? He understands God as the eternal creator. That would have factored into it. But David's also a human, so perhaps he was just thinking, well, this is an indefinite line of human kings as long as that lasts. Because obviously, to have a genuinely forever kingdom, you need a forever king. And no human king can be Is that what God's promising to David here? Is that what David understands? Either way, it's an astounding promise. David, as you see in the second half of the chapter, he's suitably astounded. The rest of the chapter lets us know how blown away he is. He responds with thanksgiving and praise. He's humbled. I'm unworthy of this. But he doesn't just respond that way, does he? Look in verse 25. He also responds with expectation. David prays that God will be true to his word, that he would fulfill these promises. He expects God to do that. Verse 25, Now, Lord God, fulfill the promise forever that you have made to your servant and his house. Do as you have promised, so that your name will be exalted forever, when it is said, the Lord of hosts is God over Israel. There's a great moment. There's a great moment. It seems that for God's people, the long-awaited rests which was partially fulfilled in the conquest of Joshua, you may remember from that series. It's now possible. It's been guaranteed and secured in David and ensured in his, in his perpetual dynasty. And we only have to go to the very next generation, to the son that seems to be in frame in 2 Samuel 7 when God first gives these promises to see how well it all starts. Solomon, David's son, builds the temple that David wanted to build just as God said he would. And he leads the people in godly wisdom. And it goes really well. And the kingdom is as secure as it can be. And then Solomon starts not living that way. And not leading God's people that way. And there are consequences to that. There is a discipline that is imposed upon him. And it begins a slow decline. It leads to the throne being weakened. A civil war breaks out and the kingdoms split, north and south, and then ultimately it leads to exile, being removed from this land. And there hasn't been a king in the line of David on the throne 
in Israel ever since. Sure, there have been people who have been kings over Israel. Persian kings, Greek kings, Roman emperors, kings installed by Roman emperors, but not a king that we see promised in 2 Samuel 7. What happened? What about these promises God makes you to David in 2 Samuel 7? What happened to the great permanence? The great permanence of David's throne and to the peace and prosperity of promised. Israel today, it's its own state, has been so since 1948. But it's far from the vision of 2 Samuel 7, isn't it? It's not ruled by a descendant of David. It's a land that is not undisturbed. That was one of the promises of verse 10. It's a fractured and disputed land. So, what are we to conclude? What are we to conclude about God? About his power? About his faithfulness. Remember, David expected God to deliver on these promises. That was a reasonable expectation. Because as God himself said, he'd been with David and taken him this far. Of course he will fulfill his promises. But if what God has promised David here is to be understood purely in terms of the nation of Israel, then these promises, they are are little more than than banners. They're utterly more. Utterly meaningless. As is God's word. You can't be trusted. And so we see here that this lack of permanence leads to doubts over God's faithfulness. And where does that ultimately lead? That leads back to the question of relevance. That is to say, the question of whether you will devote yourself to God, His King, and all He stands for, that becomes increasingly irrelevant when the king that God promised is no longer there. What's the point? Ask an everyday Israeli living in Jerusalem, as my friend did when she studied at Hebrew University a number of years ago. Ask them, the everyday Israeli, if they're expecting a Messiah, the king in the line of David, and a great many of them will say, no. Or perhaps even, With these promises having gone nowhere, the monarchy of Israel, as envisioned in 2 Samuel 7, has become, well, has become like the British monarchy to us. Become an irrelevance. That's if it's gone nowhere. But what if it has gone somewhere? What if where it has gone is where God always intended it to go? Beyond just the nation of Israel. What if they only ever referred in part these promises to a particular people living in a particular nation? in a part of the world? What if God's people were always meant to be more than merely Jewish born? And once you start throwing those questions, even at a surface level of 2 Samuel 7, you step back from 2 Samuel 7, you realise actually this is, that's a vision that's been embedded into God's plan from the very beginning. Some of you may remember Genesis chapter 12, God promises his covenant with Abraham, otherwise known as the father of the Jewish nation. He promised that he would have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. They would become a nation that Israel became. But he also promised what? In chapter 12, verse 3, that all the peoples on earth would be blessed through you. Now, unless Israel were to come and take over all the peoples on earth, how else is that going to happen? And so with that understanding of 2 Samuel chapter 7, we can see that It's not just a forever king for God's forever kingdom. It's a for all king for God's kingdom. 
And yet there's still this tension. Well, what does that look like? What does that mean? And between exile and between the last bit of biblical revelation, hundreds of years pass. And then the tension is resolved. Your notes might say Jewish monarchy all, then to say Jesus monarchy all. And as we turn to the opening chapter of Luke's Gospel, the first century AD, we see this announcement to a young Jewish woman, a lady named Mary, that she will conceive miraculously and give birth to a son. And in that announcement, we see that God's promises are still in effect. We see that his plan is still unfolding. We see that his word remains true. Luke gives us a small but all-important detail that Mary's fiancé is of the house of David. Joseph is a descendant of David. A son born to his house is a son born to David's house. The house that was promised in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And in spectacular circumstances, the visit of a heavenly being, the angel Gabriel, Mary is told in verse 31 of Luke chapter 1, you will conceive and give birth to a son. You will call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. The echoes of 2 Samuel 7 are unmistakable. But they're not merely echoes. You know, echoes are something that kind of is like a less impressive version of the original theme. Now, this is actually the opposite. It amplifies the original promises. So we see there's a king from David's line who will reign indefinitely. Suddenly, what that means is increased. So in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God says, I will be his father and he will be a son to me. What does that mean? That sounds special, but also the Israelites were children of God because they were his people and all people who were made effectively enjoy a son and father relationship with their creator in that sense. The kings of Israel often were representatively the son of God before the people. But here we're told he will be called Son of the Most High. In 2 Samuel 7, we read about this kingdom forever. Here we see the kingdom will have no end. It's not just indefinite. It will have no end. The same way that God himself has no end. And we see the difference really crystallized in Mary's response, don't we? In the astonishment and confusion that she has in verse 34, Mary asks the angel, how can this be since... I have not been intimate with a man. I know what ordinarily happens with pregnancy. And that hasn't happened. The angel's answer is, this is no ordinary pregnancy. This is an extraordinary pregnancy. Because this is no ordinary child that you will be carrying. Verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called. Son of God. Notice that the power of the Most High. This child will be Son of the Most High. God will supernaturally harness the natural order and processes that He Himself has established. The Holy Spirit will conceive this child. And the miraculous nature of this child's birth, this descendant of David, this Holy One, means that He will be called the Son of God in a way that no one has been called the Son of God ever before. And when Jesus grows up, we see this, don't we? We see the Son of God language applied to him 
in unique ways at his baptism. He comes up out of the water at the beginning of his public ministry. A voice comes from the heavens saying, This is my son. In the event known as Jesus' transfiguration, when his disciples see him in a glorious state with a couple of Israel's great prophets, a voice comes and says, This is my son. And Jesus himself uses that language. We looked at John's Gospel at the beginning of the year. He uses it all the time there. Applied to himself to the point where the Jewish leaders knew that he was calling himself God. And wanted to kill him as a result. King David was blessed because God was with him. Jesus, King Jesus is blessed because he is God. And he brings blessing because he is God with us. And in Jesus, that great ambition that we saw in David to kind of bring temple and throne together, that's together in Jesus. And so it's in the coming of Jesus, in the Christmas story, that we're about to celebrate this month, that the kingship envisioned in 2 Samuel 7 is shown to be grander than David imagined. And the son of David, who is promised more majestic than David could possibly have thought, a forever king to rule that forever kingdom, no less than God in flesh. But of course, by going here, Christmas doesn't just fulfill God's promises to David, but those ones to Abraham too. If you just turn over the page, you'll see the other well, on the other well-known Christmas accounts of the angel appearing to the shepherds. What is part of the message they proclaim to them in verse 10 of chapter 2? I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for just the Jewish people. That will be for all people. For all people. And if you go just a bit later in the chapter, you see Simeon, this great, faithful Jewish man to whom God had promised, you will see my chosen king before you pass away. And he's waiting. And Jesus comes. And he realises the great joy the sort of joy that Danny had when she held Helen's kids. With great joy that this is the chosen one from God. And what does he say about this child in Luke 2.32? That he is a light for revelation to the Gentiles. That's you and me. That's all of us. And glory to your people, Israel. So the events of the first Christmas, they can seem very distant to us. Irrelevantly distant. Even more distant are the events and promises of 2 Samuel 7. They can seem even less relevant. But those separated by thousands of miles and thousands of years, these royal events, like King George V's coronation was to the St. James parishioners of 1911, these events are about us. They are about a ruler over us. And like the parishioners of St. James 108 years ago, we have our own coronation memento, if you will. We have the cross. Unlike the St. James Britishers, we didn't pay the price for it. Someone else did. The king who was being coronated. And unlike the St. James Britishers, this coronation memento isn't something that we grasp with our hands and display. In fact, it's, it's, not, it's not a memento at all, is it? It is the source of our kingdom's citizenship. And not just ours, everyone. See, Jesus' death as the son of David was for all people because as the son of the Most High, he created all people. And as Paul tells his Roman leaders, all people have sinned and 
falling short of the glory of God. All have rebelled against his rightful rule. All deserve the consequences of that rebellion, of that treason against the king, being cut out of his kingdom. But what did the king go and say? He took those consequences on himself. And by doing so, he paved the way for a royal pardon to end all royal pardons. And Jesus' resurrection and return to the Father means that the forever king has already begun ruling his forever kingdom. And the Bible tells us that one day Jesus will return and bring his forever kingdom into its fullest expression. And on that day, each one of us will find ourselves either a pardoned, fully restored citizen of the kingdom, or not. That will determine how we spend eternity. There's nothing irrelevant about that. And so as we, as we begin this Advent season and do so with the promises of 2 Samuel 7 and their fulfillment on our minds, it's worth asking ourselves the question. It's worth me asking you the question. Is, is Jesus your king? If not, why not? God has promised full forgiveness to all who lay their crowns of rebellion down before his crown. And we know his word is true. Can we trust him? And if Jesus is your king, what does that mean? Is that just an intellectual thing? Or is it lived out like Jesus' service of us was lived out? What does it mean at work to have Jesus as your king? in your marriage, to have Jesus as your king. At school, to have Jesus as your king. I'll finish with the words of a great old church song. One we never sing anymore. I understand why, but it's a great song. It's called The Servant King. It really captures the hope of 2 Samuel chapter 7. And what its fulfillment in Jesus means to us. What does it look like to have Jesus? The song says, so let us learn how to serve and in our lives enthrone him. Each other's needs to prefer. For it's Christ we're serving. This is our God, the servant king. He calls us now to follow him, to bring our lives as a daily offering of worship to him, the servant king. May that be true.